Well, let me again say welcome to RUF. We are, uh, every week, opening the Bible because we believe it's God's Word and that He speaks to us through it. He does good to us through it. It helps us to know Him and to enjoy Him. And uh, this semester we are working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And tonight I invite you to consider Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, uh, as we consider this semester the life and teachings of Jesus. And uh, if you are paying attention to uh, the culture around us and even your classroom, you know that there are lots of things being said, many things being written, which call into question the story of Jesus, Uh, whether it's uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, God is not great, or, um, or the book The God Delusion, or if it's just uh, the philosophy major uh, at a fraternity party, you know, standing with one drink in hand, his arm over the mantelpiece, leaning back and telling you eloquently that we really can't know anything at all about anything. And you know what you say to him, don't you? You smile, you look him in the eye, and you say your zipper's down. Because... What's he going to do? He's going to check it. Why is he going to check it? He'd be embarrassed if it was down, and he believed you when you said it was down because he actually thinks it's possible to know something. It's it's impossible to live as though you can't know anything at all. Uh, But the question is, can we know anything about Jesus, and can we know anything that's really reliable and true from the Bible? And uh, it's a question that you may be asking, it's a question that your friends may be asking, and we want to ponder that question tonight. Not only is it reliable, but is it relevant? Uh, If it's it's believable, how does it do us any good, this gospel about Jesus? And so, look with me at Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, Confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Our father in heaven, we pray that you would stir our hearts that you would inform our minds, that you would grab hold of our affections, that you would even, by your grace, change our lives. Uh, By the help of your Holy Spirit, we pray. 
Uh, be gracious to us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I want you to consider tonight the believability and the beauty of the gospel. Why can we trust the Bible when it talks about Jesus and, and, and how is it going to help us? And, and when I say it, what do I mean? By, and that's where we have to begin with, with the what. What is the it? Uh, how can it help us? What I, what I mean by it is the gospel itself. Uh, Mark says this is the beginning of the gospel. Now what does gospel mean? Gospel means an announcement that brings joy or good news. Uh, it's a term back, used back in their day um, to describe somebody who might come from a far country out of a battle to declare to a people the victory has been won. Uh, you have been freed from slavery by the victory in the battle over there. It's an announcement that would have brought joy or peace or freedom. And this is that kind of story about Jesus uh, Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. It's, it's a story of good news. And I'll say it again this week. Um, because I said it last week, and it's vital that you see this. If Christianity for you is chiefly about you, you'll be miserable or arrogant. Uh, You'll be miserable uh, if you know yourself well enough, because there are just days as you try to follow Jesus where you just stink, where, where life is awful, and where you, in trying to follow Jesus, couldn't care less, it seems. And it will drive you to despair. And there'll be nothing joyful about Christianity if you're just turned in on yourself thinking about how you're doing. But if you're having a good day or a good week or a good month or a good year, by comparison to others, by comparison to your past, and you get wrapped up in how well you think you're doing fixed on you, you'll be filled with pride, self-righteous arrogance. You almost can't help it. And what we're saying tonight is the gospel is not fundamentally about you and how you're doing. Christianity is wrapped up in Jesus, who he is, what he did already for you to bring you joy and peace and freedom. And so uh, it's important that you see that. And Mark (laughs) begins here with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, because this book is going to be all about the unfolding of who he is and what he did for you. Now the question before us, the, the, the chief question before us is, is it reliable? Can, can you trust this idea that God became man to bring lost mankind back to God? That that's who Jesus is. He's the son of God and savior who came out of heaven, was born into this world, uh, raised up to a man, was crucified, died, rose from the dead, went back into heaven, and he is God and man together in one person to restore you to God. Is that that believable? In saying it, even a preacher thinks to himself, some people think, think that's just crazy. Mark knows that you're going to be skeptical and that his early audience is going to be skeptical. And so he he brings before you three witnesses uh, to bolster your confidence. And I realize to begin uh, the second week of school, 
with an appeal to your mind to look at three witnesses to discern whether the gospel is believable is dangerous, right? Uh, your mind is already exhausted from finding your way around campus and going to class and studies. And so it's a risk. But I would invite you to consider how Mark tries to build your confidence that this is true. That you can trust it. And number one, he brings before you the witness of the Old Testament. And he says to you that there are thousands of years of prophetic prediction that God is going to come for his people, and it's fulfilled in Jesus. And he does that when he says to you, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, and then he quotes, uh, actually, more than just Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah, he quotes Malachi, he says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Okay, now, before you, if you're an English major, get you know all upset about this idea that he said, he's going to, he's, that Isaiah the prophet says, and then if you read your Old Testament, well, he's really quoting Isaiah and Malachi. Uh, before you get all upset and say, well, the Bible must be full of errors, that this can't be right, you have to understand that he's using the citation system that was at work in his day. They didn't have Turabian and MLA or whatever it is they require you to do these days. If you were quoting Old Testament prophets, you picked the major guy, and then you just quoted him and, then, and threw in all the rest too. It's chronological snobbery to assume that Mark is in error here, and therefore it's okay to reject what he says because you have a different kind of modern citation system. Okay, so he quotes Isaiah, he quotes Malachi, he puts it all together, and the point is this. These prophets predicted the coming of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. And Mark is saying to you, this has been fulfilled in the life of Jesus. For the prophecy from Isaiah, 700 plus years before Jesus. The prophecy of Malachi, 400 some years before Jesus. And now it's fulfilled. Prophecy, in other words, I want to say this to you, is an extraordinary witness to the truthfulness of Christianity. There are over 60 major Old Testament prophecies in the Old Testament written uh, more than 400 and sometimes thousands of years before Jesus ever arrived on the scene with, with um, hundreds of various kinds of implications that are as clear as day. Things like the Messiah who's going to come for Israel will be of the nation of Abraham, the tribe of Judah, the family of David. He'll be born of a virgin in a small town called Bethlehem. He'll die by torture, publicly scandalized and stripped. He'll be beaten. He'll be abandoned by his closest friends. He'll have an intimate associate betray him and sell him for some silver coins. Okay, there are all these predictions about this man who's coming. And they are fulfilled in Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, what are the odds of that? What are the odds of that? Some of you have heard me say this before. I'm going to tell you again. The American Scientific Affiliation says they calculated what's the possibility that any man could have lived down to the present time and have fulfilled eight prophecies. It's one in 10 to the 17th power, which is like, if you can't figure that math out, who can? It's like taking um, that many silver dollars. Oh, now we have to do the math. 
10 to the 17, 10 to the 17th power. It's 10 with 17 zeros after it. I don't know how many that is, but it's like filling basically the state of Texas two feet deep with silver coins, uh, painting one red, stirring them all up, blindfolding a man, sending them out, and, so, and saying to him, go pick one. Pick one. And if you get it right, that's the odds of the same odds they calculate as eight prophecies coming true in the life of one man, apart from the miraculous providential intervention of God. Um, here's a reason to believe, Mark is saying to you. Not just because Jesus does something for you, but because it is, in fact, true. And I realize to say that sounds arrogant to our culture. It, it would be arrogant if it was just coming from me, who am I? And I was trying to manipulate you into believing what I believe just because I believe it. But if it's Jesus who said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and Jesus did, and Jesus is God, then it's not arrogant to affirm his deity and humanity. It's actually an act of humility to come under him and believe what he believes about himself, because he's right. In fact, it's arrogance not to do that. If I say, well, there's nothing worth believing anywhere. Nothing is reliable or true. You understand that you're denying your own statement by saying that. If you're saying there's one thing universally true in all the universe, and that is that there's nothing universally true or really reliable, then you've undermined your whole statement. And if I say, I know uh, there's nothing that's reliable anywhere, you are also saying, you know enough about the universe to know that there's truly nothing reliable anywhere in the universe, which is a way of saying you are omnipresent or omniscient, which is a way of taking to yourself an attribute of deity itself. You understand that? That's arrogant. But it's not arrogant to come under Jesus, and because Jesus believes it about himself and he's God, to embrace it too. So John says, or Mark says to you, look, this is believable. He fulfills prophecy. And what does the prophecy say about this one who's coming? It actually talks about two who are coming. One who's going to be in the wilderness proclaiming, preparing the coming of the Lord, like a, like a herald, okay, who goes before a king, like a trumpeter who says, you know, y'all get ready, the king's on his way, one's coming, that's going to be John the Baptist, we'll see that in a second, and then, and then the one who he announces is, notice the language, the Lord, and this is an Old Testament prophecy that clearly refers to the God of Israel, and he's saying the God of Israel is coming to his people, and that's Jesus. And so you can believe this, friends, is my point. You can trust the good news that God became man to bring lost mankind back to God. Now, you will say to me, I'm not really persuaded by one witness. It's an old book. And anybody can manipulate prophecy to make it fit their expectations. Well, uh, not really, I don't think. But still, if that's your view, give me some more evidence, you would say to me. And I'll say, okay, well, Mark does. Look what Mark says about John. 
okay, in verses 4 through 8. Mark, or John, John the Baptist, or baptizer, he's not a Baptist, but he, <laughs> he baptized people, okay? His testimony is his second reason you and I can believe this. Um, notice some features about this guy named John. He's what? An answer to the prophecy of somebody coming in the wilderness. That's why to start a book about Jesus, he goes on at length to talk about this guy who eats locusts and wild honey and wears shirts made of camel hair. Why is he doing any of that? Because you eat wild honey and locusts if you live in the wilderness and you wear camel's hair if you're scraping clothing together by pulling the hair off bushes that camels have walked past. And he says, this is John. He was in the wilderness. And John, he says, ate uh, locusts. I know that's disgusting. Uh, but I eat chicken livers and he probably thinks that's disgusting <laughs> as many of you do. The question is, uh, is John, what does John have to say about Jesus? Um, and, and John is believable to Mark's uh, audience. John is the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, the, the final prophet of the Old Testament, that, that people, the people flocked to hear him because they believed him. And then what does he say about Jesus? Know what he says. He contrasts himself with Jesus, and he says, you know what I am compared to him? I am nothing. Uh, I am not fit, he says, to stoop down and untie his sandal. Now, you understand that in, in the, the culture of rabbis and disciples, teachers, there were certain things a disciple didn't do for their instructor. Uh, you might travel with them. You would certainly learn from them. But you never were required to wash the foot of the teacher. That was reserved for the, the slave of the household when you showed up somewhere. And it was reserved for the lowest slave of the household, the youngest or the newest. It's the dirtiest job in a culture where there's just filth caked on the feet. And John says, you know what I am? I'm a person who's not even worthy to do the least part of that function of the lowest slave untie the sandal, let alone wash the foot. You see what John is saying about Jesus? He's saying Jesus isn't just a great man. He's not just wiser and stronger, more popular or influential than me. He's not just charismatic and religious. No, he's not just an exceptional teacher or miracle worker. He's a different kind of being. He's God. God become man. I shouldn't even begin to bow before him. I'm not worthy of that. Wow, you say, well, I, I still really, I can't believe it. Um, you're saying, you know, well, primitive people back in their day, they, you know, they were pretty gullible, unscientific. They could believe that kind of thing, but we're pretty sophisticated university students. And Tim Keller has a wonderful response to that that I think is just really helpful, and that's to recognize this that all the original worshipers of Jesus Christ were Jews, including John the Baptist and Mark. And they had far more intellectual and cultural barriers to believe that God could become human than you have barriers to that belief. Far more. They 
they wouldn't even speak or write the name Yahweh, Lord. They held it to be in such high esteem. That's true for Orthodox Jews today. This idea that God would become man is utterly opposed to everything they had been taught about reality. Everything that they ever knew, it's against all of that. Their barrier to believing, and yet they believed, was greater than yours. Something shattered that barrier, and it was the reliability of the gospel and its truthfulness. But you're saying to me, well, you know, that's just not really enough for me. Uh, thousands of years of prophetic history, the testimony of John the Baptist, give me something more. Give me something really supernatural, as if prophetic history fulfilled isn't. But, I mean, give me something spectacular. If this is true, wouldn't the God of the universe have something to say about this directly if he actually became man? Well, yes, he would. Verses 9 through 11. At the baptism of Jesus, when he comes up out of the waters, the voice of the Father in heaven is heard to say, This is my beloved Son, and I am well pleased with him. Do you see this, friends? But this is trustworthy. God himself, the Father, speaks about his own true son. It says you can believe in him. It's, this is a reliable word. But some of you still are saying to me, you got all of that from the book. And I just don't know that I can trust the book, the Gospel of Mark. Wasn't his book written some 30 years after the death of Jesus, and doesn't that undermine its credibility? Well, no. Actually, it affirms it. And Tim Keller here, again, is just really helpful on this. If you want to read his book, The King's Cross, it's a great little book on the Gospel of Mark. He says this, Why did Matthew, Luke, John, Mark write their letters? They wrote them because for about 30 years after the death of Jesus, there were no written accounts of the life of Jesus. The gospel was spread orally, verbally. One of the reasons uh, it was, that's one of the reasons it was difficult for any distorted account about Jesus Christ to take hold because of the presence of so many eyewitnesses to the life, crucifixion and even resurrection of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul, writing um, 15 to 20 years after the death of Jesus, says that there were 500 people at one time who witnessed Christ risen from the dead. The point is this, for the first few decades, if you wanted to find out, is this stuff true or not, you could ask around, and there were people who saw it with their own eyes, credible people, normal people, who had begun to worship God who became man. But, of course, over time, as witnesses died off, the Gospels were written down so that people couldn't just make things up about Jesus and say silly things about him like, oh, you know, I saw Jesus fly through the air like Superman. Too many people would say, no, that didn't happen. I was there. I lived it. I saw it. But about a generation after the death and resurrection of Jesus, after the apostles and eyewitnesses died off, then people could decide who Jesus was and make up a Jesus of their own. And so the Gospels were pulled together to give you these early eyewitness accounts. This is the real Jesus who really did these things, who really is this man. And friends, if you want a Jesus 
who can do anything for you, help you in any way, spiritually change you. You've got to have the real Jesus, not the Jesus of your imagination. Uh, Not the Jesus that you just want Jesus to be like. Because if you get him, you're really getting yourself. He's just a reflection of your own heart's desires. You need the real Jesus who can really do something for you. And so this book was given to you so that you could trust it. And so Mark says, friends, believe this. History, prophecy, eyewitness testimony. God himself speaks. Now, some of you are saying, I believe this. And you didn't need to over-persuade me, Ted. Um, But could you tell me how this is any good? How is this helpful, really? How is it relevant that God became man to bring lost mankind back to God? I want to just highlight three ways this is helpful uh, as we close. Number one, it gives you confidence in God's mercy to know that this happened. Why did Jesus come? Because you and I naturally don't have confidence in God's mercy, apart from what we know about what Jesus is and did. In the born supremacy, uh, you remember this? I know, strange juxtapositions there. Uh, 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 David Bourne? Jason. Thank you. It's the gray hair, friends. Jason Bourne is pouring out his heart. You remember this scene? He's sitting on the edge of that bed or a chair, and he's, he's reflecting on all the people he's murdered and the life that he's lived that he doesn't even really remember, but it's all in a dream, and he's, he's figured some of it out, and he's just caught up with guilt. And he's pouring out his heart to, is it Marie or some lover? And, and he says to her, I've apologized, but nothing makes it better. You remember that? You catch what's in his heart, you know, Being sorry because you've murdered somebody's spouse. Um, Being sorry because you've hurt people God created to be loved by you. You know, it doesn't take away your sin. And simply admitting you've done wrong doesn't make it right between you and people you have offended. But to know that the injury you have caused has been made right, that the punishment evil deserves has been meted out, that, 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 that justice has been satisfied and asks no more, does relieve the conscience of the lingering doubt that God is a God of mercy to you. There's an amazing relief when you know that he lifts away all the vile filth of your life and he lays it on his own son and kills him because it's what it deserves. In your place, on your behalf, to pardon you, to free you, to give you peace with him. That, that, that God became man to bring you back to God through what he did for you. That, that builds confidence in God's welcome of you. God's love, acceptance of you. That's, that's the first reason why this is so important. Uh, the second reason, how does this help you? It, it's a resource in suffering. And these last two points, again, again, I get from Tim Keller. 
It's a resource in suffering because as you've undoubtedly experienced, when you've really been hurting, some emotional wound, some physical illness, um, it doesn't help much to sit down with somebody um, and tell them your story and pour out your heart and have them just say kind of matter-of-factly to you, well, you know, uh, do this and do that and just believe this and just believe that. You know, it'll all be better. Very little comfort in that. But if you sit down with somebody who, when you get done telling them your hurt, says to you, I've been hurt like that too. And I think deeper than you. I've experienced that pain like and more powerfully than you. Let me tell you about that and how I come through it. And let me tell you that I understand and I will walk with you through yours. That's help. And, and what you have here in God becoming man to taste our sorrows is a religion in which God has more intensely felt grief, loneliness, betrayal, illness, injustice, torture, death. He's felt all those things more completely than any of us, and he can be a friend to you in your suffering. And so it's a resource in suffering. And the the last way it's helpful to know that God became man, to bring lost mankind back to God, and that you can believe it is helpful because it's a perspective about his right to be your king, about his right to rule over you. He, He is a king. He's God. He's raised from the dead and seated on a throne, ruling over all things. And there is something in all of our hearts that doesn't like that. We like Jesus the friend, Jesus the merciful, Jesus the lover, but Jesus the ruler, it sounds oppressive to our ears. But notice the prophecy. The prophecy says this is, um, uh, there's someone coming to prepare the way for the king. And the word way there is the word highway or road. And the ancients knew what he was talking about. When a king was going to come and visit you, they sent messengers ahead so that you would get ready for his arrival. Spruce things up, you know, put mulch on the flower beds, make sure the roads, you know, were clear, level, uh, comfortable for the king who's coming, right? Now, for them, what does that mean? It means you get enslaved by the government to do the dirty work of prepping for the arrival of the king. It meant thousands and thousands of people digging through rock and mud to fill in valleys to make straight roads. The king coming meant a whole lot of hard, miserable, slavish work. And that's what a lot of people think. It is to live under the kingship of Jesus who don't know what it's like to live under the freedom of this merciful king. Because this king comes, and when he comes, he comes not to a throne, but what does he come to? He comes to a cross. He, it's, it's the paradox. The king here comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A throne is a place of power, a place of authority, 
cross is a place of powerlessness. Dying on a cross, you don't die in private. You, you're publicly stripped and humiliated. And this kingly Jesus, Mark says to you, when he got here, he didn't go to the throne, but he went to that cross. He was delivered over to death that you might be restored to life with God. I'd invite you this semester to stick with us as we explore this beautiful king. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bless you and we thank you. We bow before you and worship you. We're grateful and we say we need you. Would you be a king, a savior, a lover of our souls to us and, and would you have mercy on us and forgive us our sin? Would you walk with us through the troubles of life? Would you enable us by your spirit to live under your rule? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Um, this is our hymn of response. And we're going to respond again reminding you that...